0: Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, Vladimir Putin, in speech after speech, has continually tried to blame NATO for his actions.
1: The choice of pathways towards ensuring security should not pose a threat to other states, whereas Ukraine joining NATO is a direct threat to Russia's security. NATO began active military development of the territories adjacent to ours. This was an absolutely unacceptable threat, systematically created for us and right on our borders.
0: NATO may not be fighting in Ukraine, but it's still seen as the greatest threat to Russia. For Putin, this is a war based on history, and in particular, his version of it he claims, and this is fiercely disputed by people who were there, that the Americans agreed in 1990 that NATO wouldn't expand any further. But it has, taking in many of Russia's neighbours, like Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, and Putin was terrified that Ukraine and NATO were becoming too close.
1: Do you realise that if Ukraine joins NATO and decides to take Crimea back through military means, the European countries will automatically get drawn into a military conflict with Russia?
0: But if the war in Ukraine was supposed to keep NATO at bay, then it's failed, as NATO has expanded again. We welcome Finland as the newest member of our alliance. 31 flags flying together as a symbol of our unity and our solidarity. And again. I look forward
1: to also welcoming Sweden into the alliance as soon as possible.
0: And now, ironically, it could be about to expand yet again.
1: Ukraine is ready to be in NATO. We are waiting when NATO will be ready to host and to have Ukraine. All allies agree that Ukraine will become a member of the uh, alliance. Britain's position, going right back to I think Bucharest, was that we believe Ukraine should be able to join NATO.
0: As the heads of state of NATO countries gather in Vilnius for the start of what's being billed as a fateful summit, will Ukraine be allowed to join the fold? 22 NATO members have already expressed their support for Ukraine's membership. But can it join the alliance while it's still at war? And how would that go down in Moscow? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, could Ukraine really join NATO? We hear from a former Secretary General.
1: My name is uh, george Robertson Lord Robertson of Portellen. i've been a member of Parliament in the House of Commons and the House of Lords for now forty five years and uh, I was of course Secretary of State for defence of the United kingdom from ninety seven to ninety nine and thereafter the tenth secretary general of nato Lord Robertson.
0: In the run-up to this big summit in Vilnius, we've got President Zelensky going around the world, doing interviews, doing speeches, calling for one thing, really, and that is membership of NATO. What have you made of his requests?
1: It's perfectly understandable that he should be making uh, that request, indeed that demand. you know He's involved in, in a war with an invading force from a, a nuclear-armed power, and he sees... Understandably, NATO membership as being one of the key elements of the country's defense against the invader. A promise was made in 2008 at the NATO summit in Bucharest that Ukraine and Georgia would become members of NATO. That promise still lies on the table. We must make clear that NATO welcomes the aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine for their membership in NATO and offers them a clear path forward to meet that goal. The question will be for the Vilnius summit and the presidents and prime ministers there as to whether or not that process is going to be accelerated and uh, Ukraine be given full membership.
0: And at the moment, Ukraine, it's not a member, but it does have sort of partner status. What exactly does that mean? What, What sort of rights does that give them?
1: Well, it's not just ordinary partner status, because um, after the collapse of communism and when NATO embraced the former communist countries, the Partnership for Peace was developed in order to help them with the transition to more democratic institutions. and. Uh, Ukraine was one of those countries that was in the Partnership for Peace. It has to be said Russia was also and is also a member of the Partnership for Peace. and therefore, oh, really? Yeah, oh, it is, yeah. And, and um, you know, for many years they sat around the uh, table and technically they still can. But what we did was we moved towards a NATO-Russia council in 2002, which gave them an even higher status than some of the other countries in the Partnership and I would guess that that is what is going to happen with Ukraine at the Vilnius summit.
0: And what exactly does that mean? What, what sort of additional rights does that give them or what sort of protections does it offer?
1: Well, it doesn't offer any particular protections, but what it does is enhance the cooperation between NATO and the individual country. So I'm assuming that that is the, the path down which they will go because, of course, people need to remember that you know, one of the criteria for joining NATO is that you essentially don't have any outstanding aggression in your neighbourhood. So I think that is going to be a very limiting factor in terms of giving it full membership. You know, would that imply that if they got full membership, would they then? have the Article 5 protection. That is the part of the North Atlantic Treaty, which says an attack on one country is an attack on all countries. So that's the big question that will have to be resolved politically by the presidents and prime ministers who will sit around the uh, table at Vilnius.
0: And that Article 5, that really is the crux of being a member of NATO. That's one of the most important parts. Obviously, right now, if Ukraine was to be fast-tracked in, that would presumably mean we'd all have to take on their
1: war. That would be one of the implications that would be worrying the heads of state and government when they consider that view. And I think President Zelensky knows that only, only too well. We understand that while the war is ongoing, we can't become a member of NATO. However, we need to be sure that after the war, we will become a member. But Article 5 is the basic collective security guarantee, which binds the NATO countries together. It wasn't easily achieved. In 1949, the American Senate suspected that it was a way of trapping the United States into defending European countries in a way that they had not done during the First and Second World Wars. Mm. So it was achieved with enormous difficulty, and it's very cleverly worded because the principle of an attack on one country being an attack on all countries is then followed by a separate decision as to what to do about it. And I'm the only Secretary General of NATO who has has actually invoked Article 5. I know only too well the differentiation between the decision in principle and then the decision in practice, which follows on after that.
0: Tell us about that moment when you had to invoke Article 5.
1: This was the day when America was attacked, 9-11, the attack on the Twin Towers and on the Pentagon. The North Atlantic Council met tonight to express its solidarity with the United States of America at this moment of great tragedy and mourning. You know, we were a military headquarters, we were obviously as transfixed as transfixed as everybody else in the world was by what we were seeing on television, but we were also conscious that we were players involved in it. And at that point, I suggested that perhaps an attack on America should be seen as an attack on all countries because of Article 5 obligation. Now, that in itself was controversial because Article 5 was designed for a Soviet attack on Western Europe. But people round about me said, well, this is probably quite relevant to the moment, and I phoned Colin Powell, the American Secretary of State, to raise the issue with him, and we set in in motion the processes that led to a, a statement which went to the North Atlantic Council ambassadors the following day, on the 12th of September, and after a long period of discussion and debate in countries around the alliance. By 9.30 that night, the decision had been taken that we would invoke Article 5. So far, what is known about Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda organisation and their involvement in the attacks and in previous terrorist activity and the links between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban regime in Afghanistan... The facts are clear and compelling. has to be said, the, the following day, everybody thought it was their idea, and I didn't China. disabuse the world of that <laughs> fact, but it had huge symbolic importance, especially for Americans. Which states that an armed attack on one or more of the Allies in Europe or North America shall be considered as an attack against them all. That the great alliance of, uh, of then 19 countries was standing in absolute solidarity with them. Under attack.
0: And that's really the strength of NATO, that sense of collective security when when you need it. Given that you've lived through that moment of gravity of having to invoke Article 5 and knowing what it means, knowing that all of these countries are now facing war, are you surprised that so many high profile people seem to be supporting not only Ukraine's application, but, you know, I think the Foreign Secretary here, James Cleverly, has talked about a fast tracked membership for Ukraine, which, given that we don't know when this war ends, seems surprising perhaps?
1: People talk, perhaps in 2 glob terms, about fast tracks and uh, and NATO membership because there is a process here that has to be gone through. And undermining that process is not the best idea possible. But Ukraine is under attack. And instead of worrying about the fine print Of membership action plans, we should be focusing our mind on defending Ukraine, giving them the means by which they can fight off the attacks by the Russian Federation at that point. And I think that particular debate is a distraction from the absolute priority about keeping and maintaining alliance, unity, and making sure that the rest of the world, which is not unfortunately particularly on side at the moment, is brought into that element of solidarity that will be required to change Vladimir Putin's mind. Do you think they should join? I believe that eventually they, they should join. That's uh, something that I think uh, was in the promise of the Bucharest Summit, it's the question of timing and the conditions under which it would be. Because countries joining NATO have got to contribute to collective security and not just benefit from collective security. It's not a gift, it's not a prize, it's not a reward. It is something that is truly meaningful because countries inside the alliance have got to be prepared to defend all of the other countries if these countries are attacked So it should not be seen in in a a simplistic way. It's a process that is highly, highly demanding.
0: As you say, the the process to join NATO is highly demanding. We've talked about how Article 5 makes it very difficult for Ukraine, while it's at war, to become a member. Are there also conditions about territory within the country being contested, which might apply to, to Ukraine, because obviously they've had sort of a frozen conflict effectively in the Donbass now since 2014. Would that stop them becoming a member if that hadn't been resolved or if, if Crimea hadn't
1: been resolved? Well, the objective of the Ukrainians is to take back all of the sovereign territory that is theirs. So, you know, I think talking about frozen conflicts or about Russian occupation. It's not particularly useful but you know I, I don't feel that as a former secretary General I should be wandering into the the field that will be discussed last in, in Vilnius when the summit meeting takes place the the various presidents and prime ministers have got to weigh up a whole series of different factors before they come to a conclusion about it and therefore alliance solidarity is going to have to be the top priority and making sure that the ammunition and the equipment that Ukraine desperately needs is going to be delivered at the time that makes it appropriate.
0: Coming up, why is NATO such an obsession for Vladimir Putin? Lord Robertson tells us about his chats with the Russian president and the time that Putin tried to charm NATO with a joke. You'll want to hear this. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As NATO prepares for its big summit in Vilnius, one topic that's bound to be on the agenda is whether Ukraine should be offered membership. But how would Russia react if it was? Why does President Putin see NATO as such a threat? To understand this, we need a little history lesson. Let me take you back to the very start in 1949. In the aftermath of the Second World War, Twelve nations came together to provide mutual security and, as one former Secretary-General put it, to keep the Soviet Union out, America in, and Germany down in the new post-war
1: Europe. They are sworn to stand together against aggression. An attack against one would be an attack against all. This Union of Twelve Nations became known as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or more simply, NATO.
0: And then, in 1990, as German reunification was taking place, the American Secretary of State, James Baker, tried to persuade President Gorbachev to let Germany join NATO. It was one moment, one private conversation in Moscow during those talks, that changed the course of history. This is how it's remembered by one of the American diplomats who was in the room at the time. Baker posed a hypothetical to Gorbachev. He said,
1: you know, would you prefer to have a united Germany sort of independent, neutral, not linked to the West, in the heart of Europe, or would you prefer to have a united Germany in NATO with the jurisdiction not one inch further? Now, it's that hypothetical that Putin
0: goes back on. Imposing a hypothetical scenario, James Baker used the phrase not one inch further to describe NATO's future expansion. It's a phrase that has echoed through history. Gorbachev claimed that that phrase had been a promise, but the Americans said it had never actually been agreed, and some of the Russian delegation who were there agreed with them.
1: The idea that the Russians would say, oh, yeah, you posed a hypothetical to us and that's good enough. We don't have to get it in writing. It's a little crazy given how the Russians act.
0: It's interesting to note that the Soviet foreign minister, Kozarev, the Russian foreign minister, both say there was no promise. But for many in Russia, every time a former member of the Soviet Union became independent and then joined NATO, like Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania it brought the military alliance closer to Russia's door. Even though NATO is a defensive alliance, Russia sees it as its greatest threat, and Putin is determined to stop Ukraine from joining. But Lord Robertson thinks that NATO isn't even the most urgent problem for Putin.
1: Well, I don't uh, take a conventional view on this. I don't think that Vladimir Putin sees NATO as being the biggest problem. After all, the whole argument between Russia and Ukraine started with the European Union offering association status to Ukraine in 2014, and President Yanukovych of Ukraine at that time being told by the Kremlin that he was to reject that offer. As a consequence of that, we had the demonstrations in the Maidan in Kiev...
0: It started as a peaceful protest in one of Europe's busiest capitals. It exploded into massive violence and bloodshed, now on the brink of a civil war.
1: At issue, should Ukraine have closer ties to the US and Europe or Putin's Russia? And the whole saga then developed as a consequence of that. I think it triggered that, the conflict, really. Indeed, it did. So it wasn't NATO membership. And remember, Vladimir Putin never complained to me once in all of the meetings that I had with him during my period in NATO. Never complained once about NATO enlargement at all. But the European unionization of a country next door, bringing with it the rule of law, mixed economy, a free press and free speech, you know, that really was a threat to the Putin model. And that's what sparked it all off. You know, a country that's got 4,000, nuclear weapons, is not going to be scared about the NATO alliance. And therefore, NATO enlargement was never seen by him as being the biggest problem, whereas the way in which the European Union had transformed the former communist countries into thriving democracies, that genuinely was a threat to the Putin type of model that he was developing of authoritarian leadership.
0: So you think the European Union is actually the biggest threat, which, you know, President Zelensky has been asking for fast-track membership of that too?
1: I think that Vladimir Putin is more worried about what would happen to Ukraine if the same thing has happened in Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic was to happen in his doorstep. And therefore, you know, you know NATO is known in Russia, so it's an easy bogeyman to bring out of the cupboard and make that the biggest issue. But, you know, when you look at the underlying circumstances and you look at the history of this from 2014 onwards, you get a completely different picture. Now, not everybody shares that view. Uh, there are a number of people who, who believe that NATO membership for Ukraine would be a huge provocation. But, you know, it wasn't in the case of all of the other countries. Polish uh, membership of NATO right on the edge of Russia was actually seen by many Russians as being a benefit because it stabilised the former communist countries on Russia's western border in a way that might not have happened without NATO and EU membership happening. Well, you're
0: probably best placed, really, to talk about this. But, you know, so much of the Russian rhetoric around this, and there are even sort of people in the West who seem to be sympathetic with Russia on this, who claim that NATO's enlargement, NATO's expansion over the years is the reason why Russia has now gone to war with Ukraine, why they feel threatened. And yet you were there for a lot of that enlargement. You were there when some of these countries around Russia joined. Give us the history behind this. Why does Russia see that as a broken promise?
1: I think that Vladimir Putin is redrawing history. He's sort of claiming that Gorbachev was tricked after the end of the Soviet Union implying that Yeltsin must have been drunk when he signed up to the Helsinki Accords and to the Budapest Memorandum, all the things that, that ended the Cold War. But actually, you know, I have a piece of paper in front of me here today, signed by Vladimir Putin and signed by me in the Rome Summit in May the 28th, 2002, where he signed off the idea that countries had the right to make their own decisions about their own Security. So the reinvention of history is a a well-known old Russian trick that we used to be a joke, that we can easily foresee the future but we can't foresee the past is more than a joke. So uh, the world has moved on. Vladimir Putin and Russia have moved on as well and he signed that declaration, the Rome Declaration, in 2002. And I have to tell you as well that during my four years in NATO... And the three and a half years that I dealt with Vladimir Putin in nine meetings, he never complained about NATO membership once. Even the Baltic states, the three states, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, which were part of the Soviet Union joining NATO, he never made any objection to their joining NATO at that time. And you dealt with him one on
0: one. I mean, just give us a sense of how... Warm the relationship was effectively back then between
1: Russia and NATO. the relationship was was really quite good. He was talking about uh, NATO membership. We established a NATO russia council at that summit meeting in Rome, and all, a whole series of working parties underneath it, dealing with all sorts of subjects, you know military medicine, the the uh, disposal of surplus ammunition, even nuclear. Uh, technology all of these things were part of working parties with the 20 nations operating round the table so you know there was a period when he was on our side. At the end of my term, he even suggested that that I might become the chairman of the Nord Stream pipeline. Okay. So, there, you know, there, there was—I didn't accept, obviously. <laughs> but uh, you know, there was a degree of cordiality about it, which you know might have been built on. But gradually he became more and more paranoid. He wanted equality between Russia and the United States. He wanted the resurrection of the status that the Soviet Union had. And buried away in his dasha during COVID, I think he boiled himself into the point of thinking he could reconstruct the old Russia and its old borders. And therefore, the promises that he made about Ukraine having the right to make its own decisions, you know, faded into his reinvention of history.
0: And yet before that, had he been quite serious when he asked you whether Russia could even join NATO?
1: Well, I don't think he was serious that day because you know, there was no reasonable prospect of that happening at that time. But, you know, my answer to the question that he posed was let's cooperate and engage together and see where that takes us. And actually it took us to the NATO-Russia summit in 2002 and the creation of the NATO-Russia Council. I was chairing it at the end of the, the tour de table, you know, the, um, the opening Speeches by all of the presidents and prime ministers. He actually cracked a joke, which everybody laughed at, and, and not nervously, nerv- and not no, well, not nervously actually, <laughs> because it wasn't the, the best joke in the world, but it it was a joke, and people Go sort on, of what felt. Was it?
0: Uh, You said
1: that I had announced that uh, I was the chairman of the North Atlantic Council, the NATO Council, I was chairman of the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Council, and now he said you're the chairman of the NATO-Russia Council. I would suggest that NATO headquarters should now be called the House of Councils. Now that sounds uh, unsurprising, except the, the Russian word for councils is Soviets. So the interpreters were saying, I propose that you call the NATO headquarters the House of Soviets. You know, everybody laughed uproariously, although the the Polish delegation looked a bit nervous at the suggestion. I bet. And it was designed to be a play on words and uh, a joke at that time. (laughs) It's it's a good thing you've got uh, me in the chair and uh, I will declare that to be a joke. (laughs) So, you know, there was an element of cordiality which was to dramatically reduced over the years after that. He wanted to break European unity, which he thought was going to be an easy task. And in fact, he's welded the Europeans together. He wanted to break the connection between the United States and Europe, and it's now stronger than it has been for many, many years. And he thought that he could take Kiev and in, uh, in three days uh, decapitate the Zelensky government and occupy the whole of Ukraine. And of course, it's been a, a complete mess. And he's found himself on the on the wrong side of military victory. So it, all of his strategic objectives have come to little or nothing. But he's still sort of pursuing his, his objectives. But there is little doubt at all that what he set out to do, he's achieved almost the exact opposite.
0: And as we look ahead to the summit in Vilnius, what do you think might be offered to Ukraine out of it? You know, if there is talk of membership, for example, what are the options that might be on the table?
1: Well, there are a series of options that can be produced. Uh, One of them is changing the NATO-Ukraine Commission to the NATO-Ukraine Council and giving it an enhanced status in terms of NATO's internal organisation. Much more help can be given about getting the degree of interoperability with the Ukrainian armed forces and the NATO forces. And I would expect that that will be done as well. But people will be working over time to find ways in which they can maintain the solidarity and maintain the effectiveness of the connection with Ukraine at the present moment. And I, d- I don't think that they should allow themselves to get bogged down in processes or terminology. What matters at the moment is that Vladimir Putin must not succeed in destroying Ukraine as a country, and therefore the priority around that table The big table in Vilnius is going to have to be to maintain the solidarity, which alone is going to change Vladimir Putin's mind and persuade him that this conflict is not worth pursuing and that he must give up and go home.
0: Do you think there might be the promise of more weapons or more help also coming?
1: Undoubtedly, there will be more promises of help because that's going to be necessary A lot of the NATO countries have found that their own supplies are inadequate, both for helping Ukraine and also for defending themselves. So increased defence expenditure is obviously one factor to be prioritised there. But much more than that will be the readiness of NATO forces and NATO troops. Uh, The degree of interoperability between the countries is now in high profile and will have to be addressed. But making sure that Ukraine gets the supplies of weaponry and of equipment that they require at the present moment will have to be the biggest priority of the summit meeting.
0: Mm. And looking back now, you know, the promise was made in 2008 that Ukraine would be able to join. Do you think it was a mistake that they hadn't?
1: I don't think at that time they could have joined. I don't think that Ukraine and Georgia were in any ways ready for NATO membership at that point. So it was a decision in principle taken at Bucharest to say that they would eventually become members of NATO, and they will become, they will eventually become members of NATO. It's difficult to foresee the future completely, but you know we may have to start looking again about some pan-European security structure, which might eventually be in a Putin-free Russia. I don't think that we should assume that Russia is always going to be the kind of Russia that Putin is projecting, there are good people in Russia, there are serious military people in Russia who see a future much more aligned to the West and to Western values, and who want to be united against the common threats that Russia and the rest of us all face at the present moment. So the future is difficult to foretell, but it's going to have to be a Russia without the kind of aggression that Vladimir Putin represents today.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Lord Robertson, who served as Secretary General of NATO from 1999 until 2004. If you're a Times subscriber, you can follow all the latest from my colleague Oliver Moody, who is in Vilnius for the NATO summit that starts tomorrow. The producer today, Was Priyanka Dalardia. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by Charlie Brandon King. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.